You're open to the book of Jude. We've been studying this little book now for 10 weeks as we have looked at the content of this book. We have noted that uh, this little postcard of an epistle, the primary thrust is found in this statement. It is the duty of every genuine believer to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's not just for pastors, missionaries, deacons, teachers. That's everybody. Jude does not specify certain groups of people in the congregation. He says it's up to you to contend for the faith. It is up to you in order to ensure that this is being done. Well, why is that the case? Why must we contend for the faith? He takes the majority of his epistle to explain that in verses 4 through 19. He speaks of the fact that certain people gain access to the people of God, and what they do is pervert God's grace and deny his authority, and threaten to divide the church. He speaks of that very plainly in the first part of his epistle in verses 3 and 4. And he says, because of that, you should beware that this is what takes place among God's people. And then he goes on to describe how God feels about that. When certain people creep in to divide in this way. And he gives a number of Old Testament illustrations about how God dealt swiftly in judgment with people who were among his people and yet leading others astray. So the challenge is, you must contend for the faith. Why? Because this is always going on. Be alert. Be cautious. But he concludes this epistle with how to contend for the faith. And that's where we've been in the 20 through the 23rd verse. How are we to do this? And interestingly enough, you would think he would say, here's how you do this. You identify those false teachers, those certain people, and distance yourself from them. Remove them from your presence. But actually, he takes a much different approach. He says, here's how you contend for the faith. You contend for the faith by you yourself being a growing believer so you're not led astray. That you are grounded so that you're not led astray by these certain people that would come in and want to sift you away. He gives it in this way. He gives a primary command in verse 21. How must you contend for the faith? You could say it this way, verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That is the primary command of these verses, particularly verses 20, 21. That is the primary command. What does this mean to keep yourself in the love of God? We looked at that a few weeks ago. It doesn't mean that that you need to keep in love with God. And it doesn't mean that somehow you need to keep God loving you. It's rather the idea that you are to remain rooted in God's unchanging love for you. Remain rooted in that. Because God's love for you is based not upon your performance, it's based upon His choice. And it is a love that is greater than simple unconditional love because it's a love that is intentional and active. 
It's like the love of a father for children that is intentional and active in their lives that they would be growing and maturing. So keep yourself rooted in this understanding. God is your loving father and he wants to grow you and mature you. In the context of the book of Jude, this is how you contend for the faith. How? By remaining rooted in God's unchanging love for me. And because I'm rooted in God's unchanging love for me, I am progressing in my Christian life. Therefore, I am avoiding perverting the grace of God into sensuality and denying his lordship over me. And that's how the thing fits together. So how do you keep in God's love? How do we do this according to verse 21? Well, you'll notice verse 20 gives us two means by which this happens. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. There's the first one. You keep in God's love by building yourselves up on this most holy faith. It's the idea of a foundation of your faith in Christ. Therefore, build on that. We looked at that from 2 Peter And you are to do this according to the end of verse 21, verse 20 rather, praying in the Holy Spirit. And we're to do those things with this approach, the middle of verse 21, while we're waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So we are to remain rooted in God's love by growing as a believer. How do we grow as a believer? Well, one thing we must do is pray in the Holy Spirit according to the end of verse 20. Okay, what does it mean to pray, but pray in the Holy Spirit? We'll take some time with that this morning. Let's pray, hopefully in the Spirit, and ask God to help us with this, all right? Lord, we, we know that it is your desire to open our eyes and behold wondrous things out of your law. So we do ask that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We would know his work in our life, and we would know what it is to pray by means of him, and guidance from him, and priorities from him. And this would help us to grow and be rooted in your love that we would contend for this faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Have you prayed this week? I hope you have. In fact, according to surveys, they tell us that more Americans will pray this week than drive a car. People know a lot about praying and at least talking to a deity of some kind. But have you prayed this week? Uh, We spent a lot of time this morning praying as a church. We prayed at the beginning of our service. We prayed in the middle. We prayed before the message. We'll probably pray at the end. A lot of time praying. The question is, did you and have we prayed in the Spirit? What does that mean? How do you pray in the Spirit? 
Is it something different than what we've done? Is it something we have done? Should everybody do this? These are questions. I simply want to address these this morning in a very simple fashion, but we're going to look at several passages, I think, that will help us answer this question. And we need to begin this morning by understanding this. What it is not. Because I think here's where much of the confusion abounds. When you talk to people about prayer, they know something about prayer, close your eyes, talk to God. But is praying in the Holy Spirit something outside of that? Is it different than what might normally look like prayer? Is this a unique category? And I'll tell you where people get that often. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, some people would say, well, this is what it is to pray in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Some people would look at that passage and say, well, this is talking about a kind of heavenly language and utterances to God that are uttering mysteries in the Spirit. And this is some kind of heavenly language, and that must be what praying in the Spirit means. Look down also at verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. That somehow this is the idea of praying in the Spirit. We would oftentimes refer to this, or, or people have, as praying in tongues. Is that what it means, praying in the Spirit? Well, I don't have time to dive into this too deeply. Uh, it's probably a, a series of sermons, and if you have other questions about this, I'd be glad to do my best to answer them. But I would definitely say praying in the Holy Spirit is not praying in tongues. The reason being because of what tongues are. See, when it says in verse 2 of chapter 14, one who speaks in a tongue, what exactly is that? Well, the first time we're introduced to this idea of people praying or speaking even in tongues is in Acts chapter 2. And I want you to look there briefly. Look at Acts chapter 2. And this is at the birth of the church at Pentecost when Peter and the other apostles are dwelling in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit comes. And we're told in verse 4 of Acts chapter 2, it says of the apostles and those that were with them in the upper room at that time, verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What were these tongues? Well, verse 5 says, There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own what? His own what? Language. Okay. So you tell me, what is a tongue? The Greek word is glossa. It really is the idea of language a human language, and here the miracle was, was not that those languages were new. The miracle was is that you had people that previously had not studied or known those languages, and yet they're able to communicate in those languages. 
The text goes on and it describes these people in verse 9. It talks about the regions from which they came. And it said, these people, they're saying, we're hearing everyone in our own language, my own heart language. I'm hearing what you're saying. So if you'll go back to 1 Corinthians, and when it talks about praying in tongues, we have no other New Testament passage that explains tongues in any other fashion except for this. It's a language. It's not a heavenly language or something that has not been uh, able to be understood by human beings, but it's somebody actually speaking in a language that they haven't previously studied. In fact, the passage, I think, makes this plain. If you look in the context, look at 1 Corinthians 12 and look at verse 10. Paul talks about spiritual gifts in the, in the church, and he says in verse 10, to another in the church, they're given the gift of the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of those tongues, all right? Um, there again is the same word that's used in Acts chapter 2 that there is defined as languages. And even within the context of 1 Corinthians 14, we understand these things to be languages. Look at verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 14. He says later in this passage, there are doubtless many different what? Languages in the world. None is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. And here's what it says is when you come into this, this context of worship and somebody stands up and they do speak in tongues, a known language that they haven't previously studied. If I'm sitting there and I don't know the language, I'm thinking, what did they just say? Now, this is something that occurred in the first century context during the foundational period of the church. In fact, in verse 22 of chapter 14, it says that these tongues were actually a specific sign to Jewish people. You say, well, why did God do this? I think what happens in Acts chapter 2 is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. You had Babel where God confounded the languages and divided the, the, the nations because they were trying to exalt themselves against him. And when you come to Acts chapter 2, God is saying, I'm going to unite those nations again under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. The other reason that speaking or praying in the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues, number one, because of what they are. These are, these are known languages. It's not what we read of in, in, in 1 Corinthians 14. It's not that same kind of thing. Jude's not talking about doing what 1 Corinthians 14 says. Also, because we're told in Jude, everybody should be praying in the Spirit. And this gift of tongues, according to 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 30, was not for everybody. So just to put that aside, what praying in the Holy Spirit is not, it is not speaking in tongues or praying in tongues, even if you understand those things correctly from the New Testament context. So that brings us up to this. Well, what is it then? Well, here's what's interesting. If you look through your New Testament and you study this phrase, in the Spirit or sometimes by the Spirit, you'll discover that there's actually many, many more things we should be doing by the Spirit than praying. In other words, praying in the Spirit is just a number of, is one of a number of things we should be doing in or by or with the Spirit. For instance, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16 says that you should walk by the Spirit. 
That's the idea of cooperate with the Spirit's work in your life, and you'll not fulfill the desires of your flesh. Romans chapter 8 and verse 13 says that you are to put to death the deeds of your body by the Spirit. With His help, you are to mortify sin. In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3, it says that nobody confesses Jesus as Lord except they do so by the Spirit. The Spirit enables that understanding. In Philippians chapter 3 and John chapter 4, we're told that we are to worship by the Spirit or in the Spirit. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 8, we are to love in the Spirit, love one another according to God's Spirit or how God's Spirit enables us to do so. So doing something in the Spirit is not unique to praying. We could almost say our whole Christian life is lived in the Spirit, by the Spirit, with His help. Why is that the case? Well, let me show you another book of your Bible that kind of elaborates on this idea. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. In fact, we're going to find a very similar phrase here at the end of Ephesians to that which we are reading of in Jude 20, praying in the Spirit. But look at Ephesians 1. You say, okay, who is the Holy Spirit? What does he have to do with anybody's life in this room today? Look at Ephesians chapter 1, and notice verse 11. Paul writing to the church, he talks first of all, or he talks here about Jesus. Verse 11, he says, in him, and that's referring to Jesus. In Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Look at verse 13. In him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were what? Sealed with what? The promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Here's what this verse says. There are people in this world that actually have the promised Holy Spirit, the one that Jesus promised, sealing them. We would say indwelling them, living within them. How does anybody get to the point where the Holy Spirit is living within them. Well, what does the verse say, verse 13? When you heard the word of truth, what's this word of truth? It is the gospel of your salvation. What's the gospel? It's this good news that you are a sinner. That's bad news. You are condemned by God. The good news is, is that Jesus Christ came and stood in your place and took your punishment on the cross. He substituted for you and paid the full price for your sin. So that when you understand that and you believe in Jesus, you you cast your hope upon Him, you're embracing Him as your Lord and your Master. He's your only hope of salvation. When you do that, you've heard the gospel of salvation. You've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, the Bible says, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit comes to live upon you, and it's like the seal is the mark that you are genuinely a child of God. Here it talks about he is, he is the down payment of an inheritance. It's like he's, he's the first part of what we're ultimately going to get in its full realization. And so he comes to live within us as our resident. Well, what does he do? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ today, the Holy Spirit resides within you as a believer. What does the Spirit do? Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 18. Speaking of Christ again, we're told that through him, through Christ, we both, and the both refers to Jews and Gentiles who in that age were at enmity with one another. But he says, here's the same footing we're on. Through Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one, what? Spirit, capital S, and the access is to who? The Father. That you were given the Holy Spirit, and part of what the Holy Spirit does is assures you that you have access to God, that you're His child. In fact, Galatians 4, 6 says this, because you are sons, God sent His Spirit into your heart, whereby we cry, you know it? Abba, Father. And God gave you the Spirit so that one thing that you would know is that you are truly His child, and that Spirit works in your spirit to assure yourself of access to God. Why is that important? Well, beloved, do you ever feel too sinful to pray? Do you ever feel too defeated and ashamed to come to God again? It's at that moment that the Holy Spirit ministers to our spirit and says, go to your father. He's your father. He wants you to restore fellowship with him. In fact, look at chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 18. Here's a command that we're given. Verse 18 says, Do not get drunk with wine. That is debauchery. We all know what that is, right? But in contrast and by comparison, be filled with the Spirit. How do you know when somebody's drunk with wine? It's obvious in their speech and their behavior. It affects all their faculties. It says, okay, here, here's the comparison. Instead of that, you ought to be filled with or controlled by the Spirit. Well, how do I know if I'm really being controlled by the Spirit? Here's one thing. Look at verse 20. When I'm controlled by the Spirit, verse 20 of Ephesians 5, I am giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that sound like? When I'm giving thanks always to God the Father. What does that sound like? Does it sound like prayer? In fact, when I am being controlled by the Holy Spirit or I'm walking in cooperation with Him, one of the evidences of that is I pray a lot. In fact, I look at my circumstances, good and bad, and I thank 
God for those things. Because as we'll see in a minute, I know all of those things, good and bad, have a purpose from my Father. And the Holy Spirit is working in me to pray those purposes back to God. And Paul concludes this epistle. Look at Ephesians 6. Look at verse 18. In the context of spiritual warfare. When we war against our adversaries that are unseen, we're told in Ephesians 6 and verse 18, we are to pray at all times, how? In the Spirit, just what we read in Jude. We are to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in prayer. Praying in the Holy Spirit. You must have the Holy Spirit and be a child of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit. You must be in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit guarantees your access to God. And not only that, the Holy Spirit is your advocate. Now let me explain that to you. I want you to look at Romans chapter 8. When you hear the term advocate, and you're a follower of Christ, what do you think? Who do you think of? You think of Jesus Christ. He is our advocate at the right hand of the Father, whoever lives to make intercession for us. The book of Hebrews makes that plain. Have you ever thought about this? Look at Romans chapter 8, and look at verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes and says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What are the sufferings of this present time? It's the suffering of living in a sin-cursed world. It can be physical suffering. It can be emotional suffering. It can be spiritual turmoil. And Paul says, when I look at all the effects of living in a sin-cursed world and I put it on the balance of what is yet to come when the curse is removed, the balance tips way in the favor of eternity. Nevertheless, how do we live when we suffer? Because we do suffer. And look at what he says. He says, look down at verse 22, he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. He says, just, just look at the creation. It suffers. Think hurricanes, right? Trouble in the world. He also says this, um, verse 23, not only the, create, the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Think of that promise, that down payment, that guarantee. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, we have the Spirit, and we know there's something coming that is so much better, but we suffer now, and the suffering is real. And what do we do? Well, verse 26. We're told, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, in our sufferings. Why? Because we don't know what to pray for oftentimes when we suffer, but the Spirit Himself, what? What's the word? Intercedes. Look at verse 27, the end of the verse. The Spirit intercedes for the saints. Remember, we think of intercession as Christ 
But here it tells us the Spirit intercedes. How does that happen? Well, what is intercession? Intercession is meeting with God on behalf of another. And Christ intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father on account of sin. He is our intercessor. He has borne our sin and grants us right to come into the presence of God. The Holy Spirit, according to this passage, intercedes in our heart on account of our weakness. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we're praying that we would know what is right to ask in our weakness. This is what the passage says. Let's read it again carefully. Look at verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. Remember the context of suffering? I don't always know what, what, what I should pray in this suffering, but the Spirit intercedes for us, how? With groanings too deep for words. Verse 27, And he who searches hearts, that's speaking of God the Father, he knows what the mind of the Spirit, what is the mind of the Spirit, why? Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to what? The will of God. The Holy Spirit knows what the will of God is in that suffering. And even when we suffer, and I don't always know what to pray or what the result will be, the Spirit intercedes for me according to God's will. We have a biblical example of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul is suffering from what he calls a thorn in the flesh, right? Right? He says, three times I asked God to deliver me from this. And Paul is praying, deliver me from this. He thinks this is God's will. Perhaps I could minister so much more effectively if I didn't suffer this way. God, please deliver me. And I think when Paul is praying that, the Holy Spirit is interceding and saying, but the will of God is what? The will of God is actually that you have that suffering because it's working something greater in you, Paul. Paul concludes and says, I'll glory in my infirmities then because God is using the suffering. Could it be said in this context as well, our Lord Jesus in Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion, he goes a distance from his disciples and he falls on his knees and he prays in agony, as it were, great drops of blood streaming down his face. And do you remember what he prayed? Father, if it be possible, what? Let this cup, cup of suffering, pass from me. But aren't you glad he didn't end there? I think in our example of a man who was perfectly controlled by the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ said, yet not my will, but yours be done. And what was God's will? It was God's will that Jesus suffer. I think that's a good picture of the Holy Spirit interceding right there in that prayer. Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't always know what to pray, especially when burdened by sin or suffering. 
but he knows what is the will of God, and he is our helper then. This is what it is to pray in the Spirit. It's to pray in dependence upon the Spirit. That he would take these prayers that I'm offering, but that he would suit them to the perfect will of God, and therefore when it's answered, I accept them as from the hand of God. That's a better prayer than I would have ever prayed. I thought it was this, and God should have done this. This is what happened, because this is how God answered, and that's a better prayer than I would have ever prayed. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I think this is clear in the context of Romans 8, right? When the Spirit is interceding, because they're told in verse 28 of Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. What are the all things? Even those things that make us suffer. They're working for the good, and the good is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And how many testimony could we give time and time again among our congregation where you would stand up and say, God has conformed me to the image of Christ. He has grown me, and he has done it through suffering. Because God does that. And when we often want to pray, get me out of the suffering. Just relieve the pain. The Holy Spirit knows better. And according to the will of God, he says, God will refine you through that suffering. He will burn up the dross in your life so that you will come forth shining like gold. Holy Spirit is our intercessor. He is an advocate within our heart and our weakness, especially in times of suffering. And the Holy Spirit, praying in the Holy Spirit, is also praying according to God's will or praying scripturally informed prayers. Do you know what it is to pray in the Spirit? Guess what? You have a Bible that's filled with people praying, and you know they're prayed in the Spirit. Why? Because he inspired them, and they're recorded for us. You have a whole Psalter. Most of those Psalms are prayers. You have prayers that the Apostle Paul prays in many of his epistles for those to whom he's writing. Last Wednesday at our prayer meeting, we looked at one of those prayers, a woman pouring her heart out to God, Hannah, over the desire of a son to raise him in the Lord's words. We would know what it is to pray in the Spirit and pray according to God's will by the Spirit, and we would do well to study those prayers. What do people in the Bible pray for? What are those priorities? How does God answer those prayers? Maybe I should pray like that. Maybe those should be my priorities. And I should write those things down. Would that not be praying in the Spirit? So what is praying in the Spirit? I'll leave it with this. Praying in the Holy Spirit is when our prayers are prompted and guided by the Holy Spirit. Prompted in that sense that, remember, we have access by the Spirit. God is our Father. In your weakness, in your sin, you can come to Him. Romans 8, earlier on in that passage, it says it's by the Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit prompts us in prayer. Go to your Father. Go to Him. He has the answer. Come to Him. He'll accept you especially in our weakness. 
and prayer guided by the Spirit. When we read those inspired prayers of Scripture, it tells us what godly priorities look like. And He's guiding our desires of our heart that we would pray according to God's will. This is praying in the Spirit. Go back to Jude. You keep yourself in the love of God, the end of verse 20, by praying in the Holy Spirit. Why is this so important? Look at verse 19. When he talks about those people that have crept in and caused divisions, it is these who cause division, worldly people devoid of who? The Spirit. And this is why he brings this up. There's a contrast. There's people among you. They know nothing of the Holy Spirit. They don't possess the Holy Spirit, or they don't have him as a resident in their life. They don't pray in the Holy Spirit. They don't live life by the Spirit. And he says, these are the kind of people that are causing divisions among you. But if you want to stand for the faith, you live your life in the Spirit. And a big part of that is praying in the Holy Spirit. Spirit-prompted prayers. Spirit-guided prayers. You remain rooted in God's love by growing as a believer, and we grow by praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, beloved, I know I'm a bit over time, but I don't mean to be spooky. Whenever you talk about the Holy Spirit, people get spooky, right? But if, if, if you're a believer and you know the Lord haven't you just known that there were times when the Holy Spirit was prompting you to pray? I have known that since many, many times. Well, I just know that, that there's this within me that says, you really, really need to talk to God about that. And been challenged to do so. And when I've, when I've done so about things that even are very, very difficult, and I've seen God answer those prayers in ways that I would have never imagined, really somewhat miraculous. Do you know what that assures me of? I'm really God's child. He really loves me as his son. He hears my prayer. This relationship is strong. It's real. And it keeps me grounded in the fact that God does love me and hears me. That's why he says, remain rooted in God's love. Pray in the Holy Spirit. And when God answers those prayers, you're going to know that that's your loving Father that prompted you to come to him and ask of him. And you're going to be rooted in that. And when you have people like that in a church who are building themselves up in their most holy faith and they're praying in the Holy Spirit and they're progressing in their Christian life and they're confident being remaining in God's love for them, you know what that is? That's a powerful testimony for the truth of the gospel. That's how you contend for a faith. Not simply apologetics, let me argue you into a corner and show how much I know. 
No, it's let me show you a life that is transformed by the gospel. Argue with that. That's how you contend for the faith. Keep yourself in the love of God. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your rich and wise design at the ascension of your Son to his exalted place of glory, he sent forth the Holy Spirit into the hearts of his people. That the Holy Spirit is indeed an intercessor in our heart. He does assure us of our access to you. He's a guarantee. He's a down payment of the promise. He's the first fruits of a harvest to come. Thank you, Lord, by his ministry that we can come to you in assurance and pray to you even in our weakness when we struggle the most and really aren't sure what to pray for. We desire that Christ would be exalted and he would be in us and we would be conformed to his image and therefore we know that all the things that happen to us are for that purpose. The Holy Spirit knows just what each situation will do in that process. And he intercedes according to the will of God. Thank you for that assurance. May we be mindful and dependent upon that as we pray. And may we follow his lead in prayers that he has preserved for us in the word we would know what kinds of things to pray for. And as a result, we would be strengthened in our faith, assured of our relationship with you, and growing stronger every day. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.